G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Well, I wonder what you think it might take to shift the community and particularly young people's attitudes about alcohol and drugs away from the cultural expectation of participation to consider the option of not having to do that. Well, in just over a week, we're going to be celebrating Christmas and we'll be excited about a new year, 2017 ahead. But as you know, along with the joy of celebration of the incarnation, God's rescue plan for humanity in the birth of our Savior, there's also going to be many families who will suffer tremendous heartbreak and loss. Family members will be numbered in the Christmas road toll and Oftentimes, that'll be related to alcohol. There'll be alcohol-related triggers for domestic violence. There'll be abuse of drugs like cannabis and taking of recreational pills that often have damaging side effects, even death. So let's talk about these drinking and drug-taking issues today. The Dalgano Institute is working with governments and community groups to rediscover the proactive and protective options of best practice prevention models in the alcohol and other drug arena. Uh, Shane Varco is Executive Director of Dalgano Institute and he's joining us through this hour to talk through these issues. Hello Shane, welcome back to 2020. Good morning, Neil. How are you today? Good to be here. I'm really well, thank you, Shane. Thanks. And uh, and what a great topic. And I know you just love getting into this topic. And oh, I know... I know you love to be a little bit provocative too because uh, it's a challenging topic to talk about uh, because, uh, as you know, our listenership, uh, we primarily, uh, I guess, uh, you know, and others will be listening as well, but primarily people who have a Christian faith listening in and and even Christians are divided on this whole issue of alcohol and uh, some wanting to defend it, some wanting to outlaw it and all sorts of different attitudes. But what we can't escape is that there are dreadful uh, impacts, uh, detrimental impacts that happen in the community as a result of alcohol, and we can't ignore those, can we? Indeed, indeed. No, exactly. Look, I think one of the biggest concerns about uh, the whole debate around alcohol issues is it's not whether I have the right or not the right to drink, the permission or not permission, and all about personal freedoms and free moral agency. That's all good and right and true, I think, in a bigger context. But I think one of the the things for any any citizen, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, uh, depending on, on your perspective, is what, you know, if I'm not considering my neighbour, if I'm not considering those around me, and my first port of call is whatever I want to do to, to suit my agenda, then often our decision-making processes, uh, particularly around substances, uh, are geared to, to quite negative outcomes. And I think that's one of the, the first primary, not the only one, but primary drivers in decision-making around substances, particularly the legal substance of alcohol, is... You know, what is it? What, do I really need this? What am I doing this for? And, and am I considering my neighbour? Am I considering the outcomes that this will bring, not just individually in, in my immediate space, but how am I contributing, If you know, and I will be contributing, to a collective understanding of, of uh, and collective manifestation of how alcohol presents itself in the community? I think that's 
you know, any responsible civic-minded citizen should be considering that space. But then, of course, once you've had a few drinks and uh, civic-minded citizenship is one of the first casualties. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we, we, that's a conversation we may get into. But, uh, yeah, I've seen enough of that over the, the last 30 years of engagement in this space to, to, to know that that's uh, one of the first casualties of... Uh, of, of consumption of any substance, particularly the legal one of alcohol, is decision-making is uh, becomes significantly poorer. Uh, when we talk about uh, drugs and alcohol, I mean, it's easy to group everything under one big heading, but, sure, uh, sure. but I imagine that if you're trying to understand uh, detrimental side effects, if you're understanding community attitudes, you probably do need to separate those for the discussion. And uh, so which are out of those? I mean, uh, alcohol, uh, drugs, and, and some people say, well, isn't alcohol a drug anyway? Uh, but uh, how do you like to discuss these things? And is there a particular perspective that you like to bring out with them separated into drugs, alcohol, and any other uh, headings yeah. that you might bring in? Yeah, I understand. I think that's a good distinction. And you know, I think one of the things about about the alcohol and other drug space, which is the uh, the clear, uh, if you like, meme that exists in policy space. So alcohol and other drugs. So alcohol is not separated out as a different substance. It is a drug. In fact, it is the most, purely from a, from a statistical and, and logistical perspective, alcohol is still the single greatest uh, harm-causing substance in our culture, primarily because it's legal, socially acceptable, and entitled in our culture, so those three drivers give it the uh, the very very uh, uh, infamous title of being the the most dangerous drug in our culture. Now, of course, those who consume the most dangerous drug in our culture are not going to parade that around as a fact. We we want to we want to shape it and craft it and mould it into something that that uh, that's a little bit more palatable, to, particularly to our our senses. So, but purely from a logistical and, and uh, outcome-based perspective, alcohol is the single biggest contributor to harm in the community, and I think that that should be a clear, uh, I think, a, not just an indicator, but a, a motivator for how we engage with the substance. You know, if we engage, how we engage, what does it look like, and I think that's that's important. So, it, I want to just sort of settle that one to start. Certainly, illicit substances uh, and how they're treated, uh, and of course. It's a separate category, Neil, being obviously illegal. Now, they're illegal for a very good reason. And uh, the argument around cannabis, for example, is is, uh, is one that's quite fascinating to listen to. But they are illegal for some very, very good reasons. These are psychotropic toxins that do incredible and, and incredible harm. But the predictability of these things is is difficult to to uh, uh, imagine because with alcohol there seems to be a consistent not of course there's always variables but there's consistent sort of basic outcomes of what happens when we consume alcohol and what may or may not take place but with uh, the term recreational drug is one of the most disgusting misnomers in the marketplace there's nothing recreational about it at all in other words we're taking an illicit psychotropic toxin for the purposes of getting stone wasted high or whatever or perhaps we're self-medicating which is a another motivator again which is for another discussion outside of the one we're just currently having. But yeah, the, the bottom line is we're taking a substance in a recreational context, but it's not a recreational drug. These are, these are like I said, highly toxic psychotropic, psychotropic uh, substances that are very unpredictable, and they can cause death instantaneously, depending on the substance you're engaging. And uh, alcohol won't kill you instantly unless you drink, you know, three litres of it in one hit, then certainly can, but most people sort of pass out before they get to that phase. Phase. So you've got this unpredictability factor. Of course, then you've got tobacco, which is the other 
the drug in the in the marketplace under the national drug strategy. You got alcohol, illicit substances, and tobacco. These three big categories. And of course, it's got its own treatment regimen in play at the moment that is assailed that legal and socially acceptable drug and brought it down to Australia being one of the lowest daily smoking countries in the entire world. So we've had a war on the illegal drug. Sorry, the, we've had a war on the legal drug of tobacco and won it with uh, between 60 and 75 percent of Australians smoking after World War Two. Yet when we come to illicit drugs. We have between arguably five and 10 percent of the population partaking of illicit drugs but we can't possibly have a war on that and reduce that number i find that dichotomy fascinating to watch in the in the drug space it's interesting when i uh, think of uh, what's happening with drugs and uh, i suppose as you get a little older you tend to reflect on young people and what might be influencing young people but uh, there is this sort of idea that as uh, you've already discounted, the idea of recreational drugs makes them sound like they're a fun thing to do and uh, there's nothing dangerous about it. But there's grey areas in all of that. And when we talk about drugs, uh, young people's attitudes, it seems yep. to be that there is, uh, there is a movement that is trying to uh, create a peer pressure that says there's nothing wrong with these things and uh, they're all fine in moderation. Uh, this sort of movement that there is, you know, the, the whole idea that uh, you know, cannabis is uh, is a, a wonderful, you know, thing to smoke uh, doesn't do you any harm. But these things are these things are scientifically not true. What which what are being promoted? Uh, you're dealing with a whole lot of you're dealing with an overwhelming sort of a a race to uh, to try and legalize some of these illegal or dangerous substances, and uh, and and it's a big battle, isn't it? Well, I think it is, Neil. I think one of the things that uh, I find fascinating in our culture at the moment is is that education works. Good education works, and bad education works. One of the one of the models that, uh, like I said, as I alluded to before, with the tobacco issue specifically, we've we've had a, a remarkable education campaign. It's taken you know a good twenty, probably twenty years of solid community-based education to see the shift in, the, in their attitudes towards tobacco. Like even when I was growing up, I mean, if you'd said to me when I was you know, 20 years old in the pub that, uh, you, know, you know, when, you're, when, you're, uh, when your kids are adults, you won't be able to smoke within 20 metres of a hotel. There'll be no cigarettes on planes. There'll be no cigarettes in public places. There'll be, I would have said, oh, you get off the grass. That's not going to happen. Um, but here we are. We, we've, we've done that. But it's interesting what's been the drivers behind that. When, and I think one of the key issues around education, any education, good or bad, is you have one voice, sorry, you have one focus, one message, and one voice. And when the whole of communities on board, for example, with tobacco, which I find this is just remarkable, and remember, this is a legal drug. This is legal, socially acceptable. If you're over 18, right, you can use this drug, right? You can purchase it yourself now. So and it's socially acceptable and all that sort. Of, well, not so much socially acceptable anymore, but it was. It was very much the social, one of the social tools of engagement. So we've got this this uh, this driver. So we've got one message, one focus, one message, one voice. Government, education, media, schools, every marketplace enterprise has a negative spin and a quit focus on tobacco. Now, it's taken a while, but that works. Now, if we give you an example, we go into schools, high schools, and we speak to students. We, you know, six, seven years ago, one of the questions we ask is, can, tobacco is more harmful than cannabis. Six, seven years ago, you get about 10% of the class might stand up and think that 
tobacco was worse than cannabis. Now, on average, we've got 40 to 50% of the class are standing up thinking that tobacco is worse than cannabis. So education actually works. Now, you've got, at the same time you've got this assault against tobacco, you've got the pro-drug lobbies assault against a generation. So they're out there in the social media space, and they've got pretty much that well harnessed. And they are railing, you know, night and day with uh, propaganda, you know. And, and, of course, with all propaganda, there's got to be truth in it for it to work. There's got to be some truth. So there is, particularly around the medicinal aspects of cannabis, so uh, medicinal potential medicinal components of cannabis. So if you keep pushing that drum, that barrel hard enough, and you get compassion stories around that, and then then you spin it into a uh, to a, the space where well obviously it's medicine, it can't be that bad. And then you go to it's pretty harmless if you do A, B, and C. Then all of a sudden this this whole driver, this community driver, you don't have one voice on this, which is an illegal drug, but the passive voice in the culture is indifferent towards cannabis, but the active voice in social media is very aggressive in promoting the the harmlessness, if not the benefit, of cannabis. And young people are being educated more in that space. So they're hearing the, the message on tobacco going, ew, tobacco sucks, and they're hearing cannabis, cannabis is good. You know, Not only is it healthy, it makes you feel good, which, of course, for the young developing brain, couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, what you may feel better, but you're only getting worse. We won't go into that conversation. But the, the staggering implications of cannabis use, particularly for the developing brain, is quite disturbing. And so there's, there's that whole dichotomy going on between you know, the medicinal ca- capacity of cannabis and its its misuse in the uh, the non uh, non medical space. So again, we've got all these things being marketed. So the education process, and of course, you get peer involvement in that. Uh, then, for example, we know that the two big drivers, besides you know, we, there's four drivers that we identified as uh, key elements for uptake of substances, uh, but two of the ones that surveys tell us that the, the two of the big ones are the curiosity, which is fueled by this faux educative process of propaganda and 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 uh, you know. Hijacked by strong media, social media presence, and of course the other one is uh, offered by a friend. So there's a double peer dynamic going on here. So my friend who I trust is giving me this, and he's telling me, she's telling me it's okay. Usually, so it's 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 not too bad, and they seem to use it and be okay. So that plus media, online media plus, you know, I'm getting my social cues from this. Oh, I might try this. And of course, if you try, you know, to try cannabis, and some people get shocking experiences first time up, which in some ways is good because that means they usually don't go back to it. But if you don't have a bad experience, or you just have an ordinary experience, or you do actually get a high, you might go and you, the next day you didn't die, the next day you didn't you didn't feel overly sick, you had a few side effects. But gee, I could do that every now and then. And there's your kicker, there's your start point. So these drivers are very very interesting in the marketplace. But of course, if you had a one message, one voice, one focus policy on cannabis, as we do with tobacco, you'd see that all change so very, very quickly. Essentially, the sorts of things you do with the Dalgano Institute is you're promoting an education program, uh, but at the present time, I imagine, uh, you might feel sometimes like uh, uh, one of the many voices crying in the wilderness, but uh, you want your voice to get louder and louder so that you can bring a, a truthful impression about uh, drugs and alcohol. Is that the way you'd sort of see uh, your positioning now in the market and the, and the way this sort of battle goes? Well, that, exactly right. And we're certainly not Robinson Crusoe in this space. We're, we're part of a, you know, a growing number of 
concerned uh, civic mind groups um, and there's we were involved with religious groups we're not a religious group but we're involved with religious groups we have people involved from uh, the Christian faith from even with engagement with uh, the Muslim community of course and Hindu community they're very very strong against drugs and of course even in the secular space where those who are of no religious persuasion have also got some very real concerns particularly the uh, the recovering addict demographic which is huge and the silence in that space is often um, not because well, the, one of the big reasons is because uh, recovering addicts or ex-addicts obviously are dealing with a whole bunch of social issues and emotional issues themselves. They're, they're ashamed of what they've done. They're, they're living with the consequences of you know, that, that whole recreational, inverted commas, drug use space that everyone told them was harmless. So they're, they're dealing with all their, the, the negative ramifications of that. And so they're not not uh, they're quite re- reluctant to stand up and bang that drum but more and more of them are coming to the space and we work uh in a lot of uh, with a lot of recovering and ex-addicts and that the, there is a an army of these people across australia there is probably more ex-addicts than there are people currently using uh if we look at alcohol and other drugs together and and if these people all stood up and said well, you know why are we doing this and every now and then they do and we're collaborating with some of these groups to do that people are saying well, why are we hearing more of this? He said, because the propaganda machine of the, that, that's unleashed and you know, around a business model, particularly when it comes to cannabis, the idea of a business model, uh, all of a sudden we just want to silence the dissenting voices. And of course, there's mis, you know, when, when misinformation is posited in the marketplace, that also creates problems. And it's interesting when, when the cannabis, pro-cannabis or pro-drug lobby posit misinformation, it's, it's overlooked. But if our side, by chance, you know, it's always accidental when it happens. We might have missed a, a pointer or misemphasised a pointer. Then it's brought out as we're presenting wrong data. It happens very rarely, uh, but but so we've got to be very careful. We're the ones who have to be careful about what we present. So our education is accurate, up to date, evidence based, and backed by good solid science. Uh, whereas the pro drug lobby don't have to worry about any of that. They just have to keep pushing their, you know, my right, my right, you know, bandwagon. It's all good. It's all good. It's all good. Medical marijuana, medical marijuana. You know, ecstasy used to be legal once. Blah blah blah. There's all these statements, and they're half truths, but they don't tell the whole story. And so this is the concern we have. But if we could get, uh, the, and we talk to mums and dads, we talk to politicians, we talk to local governments. In fact, we're doing campaigns in uh, in Sydney, in Tasmania, and we're starting in Queensland. Uh, and we talk to, to parents and local government and police and they, the people that deal and social workers that, that care about, and I make this distinction, social workers that actually care about people, uh, not care about their job, uh, they, they want to see people exit drug use. They don't want to see kids on drugs. They don't want to see families in crisis because of substances. And they're looking for answers. And, and, when and the whole uh, demand reduction model has been pretty much ignored for the last 20 years and that's now coming back on the marketplace because we're realizing that simply managing the damage of drug use instead of trying to to uh delay uptake and prevent uptake uh is is not working this you know this kind of manage the damage let people do what they want to do and hopefully they'll get through and they'll be okay is not actually working we're seeing a growing uh, escalating uh, not just drug use but the outcomes of more people that use drugs, the more likelihood of long-term harms are going to be in play. And the system, healthcare and welfare system, can't handle this. And so there's now a fresh push. And when you get the whole community starting to say, we don't want drugs in our community. We don't want, you know, we want alcohol consumption reduced. We, want, uh, we don't want any illicit substances in our community. We don't want our kids on these drugs. Then all of a sudden you've got the, the politicians start to pay, take notice. And 
I think one of the concerns I have, and the two questions I often ask of, of an audience, and I've never had a hand go up yet now, I must... I must. <laughs> okay, what are those questions? The two questions I ask are, first question is, does anyone here believe their children or grandchildren will be better off on illicit drugs or even alcohol? You know, you even ask that question. Not a hand goes up. The second question is, do you believe your children or grandchildren will be better off with easier access to drugs? Not a hand goes up. Mm-hmm. Even when I've got, I know I've got pro-drug activists in the meeting. They sit there, with their arms folded. They won't dare put their hand up because they know the, that that answer would be, "Are you kidding me? Are you, you really believe that?" And of course, no one believes that. Even the pro-drug lobby don't believe children are going to be better off on that. But that's ex- that's exactly the demographic that's being targeted, because any business knows if you want to be in business in 20 years' time, you must market to children. And addictive substances are far, far, far. Uh, more effective at getting younger. The younger you start, the greater the risk of dependency and or addiction moving forward. So that's that's one of the key drivers behind this big social push. We get kids using now, we've got a, cons- a consumer uh, model moving forward and we're going to make profits. You know? And, and for, so, well, let's legalise the drug. So, no, no, whoever's making the profit, whether it's government or whether it's the bad guys, the damage is being done. Yeah. The harms are being done to the community. And, and no narrow profit can actually fix the damage that's been done. So the model itself, that whole model, is failed from the very outset. So trying to make that work just creates another permissive dynamic in the marketplace. It says, well, okay, well, this is, this is manageable, where we know at least 15 to 20% of the population who tries drugs, it's not manageable. It's going to be their complete undoing. And I think 15 to 20%, we're willing to risk for the sake of a recreational activity that we might make us feel good on a Saturday night. We're willing to risk the health and well-being and even the life of 15, 10 to 15% or 15 to 20% of the population. See, that, that, they're getting back to that whole, where is, where is my concern, my civic concern for the, the people around me? Where is my concern for the children, the generation that's emerging? So they're the questions that we've got to keep asking the community because this is where this whole you know, debate starts to move into. And if it's not, those, those things are not brought on the table, then we just have this academic debate around money and, and personal rights to get high. Which, yeah. is, which is only a very small part of the whole argument. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. A conversation today about drugs and alcohol. Our special guest is Shane Varco. Shane is Executive Director at Dalgano Institute. There is a website, dalganoinstitute.org.au, for some great resources when it comes to understanding these deeper issues. Shane, let's take some calls. Let's hear from Stephen in Innisfail in North Queensland. Hello, Stephen. Welcome along. Hey, good morning. Good, Stephen. What are your thoughts on our conversation today? Look, um, there's so many angles I'd like to present, and unfortunately, I'm sure we don't have time. But um, I'd just like to maybe point the least most um, aggressive one. That's, uh, I had an alpha-vestral infusion after having a collapsed disc for uh, 10 years or 12 years, and I was told that if I smoked um, tobacco, I would have had cancer in that joint. It was black and rotten, excuse me. And uh, when I finally had the uh, surgery... My cytic nerve was about to be severed by the growth inside the spinal canal. So it was incredibly painful and, you know, it was morphine and anti-inflammatories and that caused all sorts of problems, you know. And, um, you know, opiates are so invasive. You know, my surgeon said that cannabis is a very good painkiller and he can't prescribe it, but he was happy for me to use it. 
So um, there's that side of it. Now, I've gone to a Queensland doctor recently, and she's from India. And I asked her about the um, Queensland's uh, position on it now, that it's changed and been made medical, when it was going to be made known and what loopholes you had to jump through. And um, she said that we're as blind as everybody else. They don't really know what to do. <laughs> so, and she said that in India, it grows everywhere and it's not an issue. They don't feel it's an issue at all. So, you know, in, each country tends to put its own light on it. But I also have known people who have used that since their early 15, including me. Now, it's never affected me um, ill. I've never had aggressive thoughts. I've never had suicidal thoughts. I've never increased my drug use. Unfortunately, I'm on opiates because of the pain. Mm-hmm. But I am able to halve them when I have access to that, if not eliminate them. And the, sure. and the it's very offensive to my body being on that, whereas the other one puts you in a psychological state where you're able to deal with the pain as well as reduce it a bit. Stephen, you've raised some interesting and important points in all of that. Uh, let's get a response from Shane Varkos. Sure. Uh, Shane, on, on Stephen's case. Yeah, hi, Stephen. Yeah, thanks for the, the, the conversation. Look, that's not an uncommon conversation we have. Of course, one of the things around the current uh, so-called, you know, the, the medical dynamic of, of cannabis and the different attitudes towards it around the world all go into a sort of cultural spaces and whatnot. Now, this is this is an hour-long response, so I'm going to try and synthesise it into three minutes. Cannabis grown naturally. Yeah, I'll, I'll try and do it do very quickly. Cannabis grown naturally, depending on where it's grown and who grows it, and as it occurs naturally, it has there's about roughly about 400 compounds in the normal cannabis plant when it's grown naturally. There's a lot. There's a lot of data in this in this conversation. We're not going to get into the, 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 the deep nitty gritty. So please bear with my synoptic response here. This is a very complex plant, incredibly complex plant. Um, yes, there are medicinal benefits in cannabis. No one's arguing that. As there are medicinal benefits in opium. That's our opioids. Yes, and opioids are very invasive, and they are for for some people they are incredibly hurtful and harmful. There's no argument there. Indeed. Of course, we have on the market, we've had on the market for about 15 to 20 years, cannabis-based medicines that are TGA-approved, FDA-approved, so they've been going through all the mechanisms, knowing full well that these medicines can be prescribed by doctors for pain management, for nausea, through chemotherapy, for appetite enhancement. I think some of the brand names are Marinol and there's Sativex. These have been around for a long time, and people are saying there's this new medicine for marijuana coming out. It's, it's actually a misnomer. It's completely fallacious because the mar- marijuana is a medicine that's been around for a long time. It's, the difficulty is that trying to extract the therapeutic properties from this highly complex plant without uh, including what they call the entourage effect. Now, the entourage effect means to, to get some of the beneficial aspects of the plant out, then we need to have some of the bad stuff go with it. So, again, you've, you've made the comment, Stephen, I hear you, and, and, again, you're not uncommon. People have used it for medicinal purposes. They don't have uh, A, B, and C. Uh, effects like the psychosis or the mood changes and I, I hear that then again there's a whole bunch of people in the same boat who do have the mood changes and it depends on when you uptake the cannabis and how much THC is in the, the, the amount you use flicking back to the naturally grown stuff when CBD and CBN or CBD particularly in, which is one of the compounds cannabidiol in, in, in cannabis is grown naturally it tends to offset the THC impact so that the stoner effect, the high effect, is negated, if not eliminated, depending on how much CBD is in. In fact, you use cannabis grown in this country right now, which has got almost zero THC in it. It's grown for clothing, it's grown for hemp, it's grown for other things. So the plant can be engineered to put 
your THC levels up to around 70, 80%. Shane, I'm going to need to cut in because yeah. we're about to go to news, but sure. I think we'll continue this uh, this response sure. after the news. Uh, thanks to Stephen from Innisfail for calling yeah, in. We'll continue you. to talk about this after the news, but uh, we'll be talking more about drugs and alcohol. You can contribute 1-800-316-316. Uh, Shane, just before the news, just reflecting, and I don't think we got, were able to give a, a full response to our caller, Stephen from Innisfail, yep. who called in reflecting on the medical benefits of using cannabis. Now, yep. uh, for listeners, Dalgano Institute is a medical charity. It's not necessarily set up to be a, a Christian voice, charity. a health education uh, charity. Uh, but you must come across oftentimes uh, the uh, Christian attitudes to cannabis use. Uh, how do you reflect, if you're just giving a fuller response to what Stephen was sharing before the news, uh, how do you respond? Uh, I didn't think you really got to a point where you actually had made a a, a, a definitive sort of response for Stephen. Well, look, the difficulty with that answer, and that's why I tried to give a, a thorough answer within like, the context of three minutes is difficult. Look, because all the medicines that we, we derive, particularly pain management um, medicines, yeah, obviously most of them have come from nature, and it's... it's uh, it's not just about you know what we get from that that pain management, but how that does manage pain. What are the short and long term effects of that, and are they going to be harmful? That's why it's so important to have the all substances properly tested through TGA, Therapeutic Goods Administration, so that they're done properly. And that's why our medicines exist with prescription modes around them, with warnings, health warnings to them. Like all medicines are dangerous. Panadol is dangerous. So every drug has a level of uh, of potential harm that can do to you. When it comes to to cannabis, one of the reasons it hasn't been used widely as as a, a pain management vehicle uh, is because of um, there's, a, there's a number of factors that contribute to that. But because, as I said before, because of the complexity of the plant and and bringing the the good, if you like, with it and and the. the Getting that good out of it also means often you have to bring the bad. That's why, for example, GW Pharmaceutical, which is one of the longest-running uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies in the world, based in Britain, it's been working on trying to uh, synthesise a, a, a cannabis plant, particularly for pain management and epilepsy, with with a new product they're putting on the market called Epidiolex. I think it's the correct statement there. It's it's trying to manage some of the nastier sides of epilepsy and minimising, and this has been a long 12, 13-year experimentation to try and isolate the compounds that can do that job without doing psychological harm or physical or physiological harm to the patient. And this is one of the concerns we have. No problem with the idea of proper, properly synthesised, properly managed, properly professionally delivered substances for the use of pain management. For example, as Stephen was experiencing, and a lot of people, particularly with terminal cancer, Drugs, like I said, drugs exist, cannabis-based drugs exist for uh, appetite in enhancement, so particularly during chemotherapy, or um, they're managing the pain because opiates are no longer working and it can help take the edge off. But these people are often dying or they're older and older age, so the psychological, potential for psychological harm is, is less than it is on a child. And if, often if they're terminal, the, the argument from their end, and I, I totally understand it, is I'm going to be dead in six months anyway. Who cares if my brain's fried? And that's kind of the response. And look, I, I see, again, I understand that process. But again, these are legitimately administered 
substances through the medical practitioner model. No Shane, is it the case that there's the idea of bypassing uh, the idea of uh, having pills that have all of the dangerous bits taken out uh, and the good bits left in? And I know you said there's grey areas yep. in that as well. Sure. But are people uh, tending to say, well, it might very well be the case that uh, that I could take a pill that might be one that uh, could be prescribed by the doctor and it might all be safe, but why don't I just sort of cut through that and just smoke a joint instead? And that maybe does the same thing. Is that what people tend to do? Well, that's because of the education process that's in play. It's interesting, during the the 90s in America, there was a big push against drug use and obviously cannabis use was the biggest one because that's the easiest one to get hold of. And the decline in cannabis use amongst the under 25 bracket was staggering until the medical marijuana model started being pushed, which, of course, in 1979, I'll give you this bit of history, uh, the head of the then-founded group called Normal, the, the National Organisation for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, came out on both print and uh, digital media saying the best chance we have to get cannabis legalised recreationally is through the medical marijuana model. So they started pushing the medicine side of marijuana, which has got legitimacy, but they used it in an illegitimate context to promote cannabis as a safer, even beneficial drug. And so then, then all of a sudden, in the mid-90s, the, use, the declining use of cannabis amongst young people started to shift upwards again, and it's continued upwards ever since until, you know, until now we've got legalisation, a whole legalisation thing happening in America. So again, this whole idea of, oh, I, I know it's best for me, that's why I said that. I've been told online by weed.com or hashtag 420 that this is harmful, harmless, and I can do this, I can do that, and it won't be that big a deal, and only some people have that. Then I read that propaganda, but I'm not going through solid evidence-based, scientifically, properly vetted processes because, again, cannabis is already on the marketplace, cannabis-based medicines, legally through prescriptive models because they have been tested, and even though there are side effects like there are with all drugs, this is done through a proper model, and it's prescribed by a doctor for a specific outcome. But when you're growing your own, and of course no medicine is smoked, <laughs> that's a point-blank range across the entire psychiatric and medical field. No medicine is smoked. It's, there's, there, any therapeutic capacity, that's negated by the, the, the smoking mechanism. So again, the, 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 there's different ways of taking cannabis other than smoking, of course. You know? So that's, yeah. that's the other model. So people use that model because it negates the smoking dynamic, which obviously does harm in itself to your lungs and other capacities. But so what you've got in play is people deciding that oh, they've read enough information, the affirmational bias that exists in them says, oh, this is good, I need this, I want this, it suits my paradigm, so I'll embrace that information and run with my decision-making process despite best evidence-based practice. And that's the concern, I think, every, if you talk about Christian people, that should be one of the key drivers, regardless of any theological framework for uh, what you believe should and shouldn't be in your body. The key evidence should be what is best evidence-based practice for the uh, ultimate, you know, safest and most productive way forward that's going to do the least harm to the citizens. That should be the driver in any discussion that's done from, a, if you like, a theological perspective, uh, let alone any of the other, other components. Shane, let's uh, let's change direction a little bit uh, sure. because I don't want to miss the opportunity to talk about uh, what is one of the more controversial things to be talked about now because uh, people talk about the coming summer season as the music festival season and there's talk about pill testing at music festivals. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on pill testing? Uh, is there some benefit in that? Is that going to save lives? Is it going to promote uh, illicit drug taking? What are your thoughts? Well, our concern with all this is that we've got, again, we're starting with the wrong premise. 
You know, and that's and this is what concerns me about both the the pro drug lobby and and their clear agenda is to get drugs you know, normalised. That's the first thing. Once normalised, then legalised. That's that's how you want to do it. So we paint them as harmless as possible, uh, or we paint them um, you know as as they can potentially be harmful, but we can negate some of those harms if only we did this. And so we want to save lives. So when you throw the we want to save lives mantra in there, all of a sudden people's ears pop up. Now, the question you've got to ask yourself is, what's putting the life at risk? Is it the, is it the, the fact that drugs are prohibited? That's not putting anyone's life at risk. Or that someone's taking a psychotropic toxin, deliberately breaking the law and taking a drug that, that can not only risk their health but their life... But somehow the prohibition of that is what's killing our kids. And that's, that's a statement often done. So what we need to do is we say, well, we can't legalise the drug. So what we'll do is we'll set up a mechanism that encourages people to bring their drug in, have it tested, so it's a legal drug. And if there's some nasties in there that are even more than the illegal substance, for example, that if you're using ecstasy as, as a pill, so ecstasy not as a drug, but the MDMA component of ecstasy, so MDMA, which can do incredible harm, that's why it was uh, deregistered and made illegal again back in the 80s. It was tried for a while, but there's too many side effects. But we're not talking about is the MDMA dangerous enough in its own right. We're talking about the ecstasy, which we have cut with various substances. Some of them are other drugs, like ketamine, or can be cut with substances like, you know, baking soda, you know, brake fluid, you know, coolant, all sorts of things that can be thrown into these things. So, again, depending on who's mixing the, the product. So the idea is bring your illegal drug, we'll test it, right? And, oh, yes, your drug has got A, B, and C. It's got, you know, baking soda and it's got ground-up glass in it. Don't, don't use this. Oh, great. But what we're doing is saying, okay, you haven't got those things in it. Have at it. Have some water. Be safe. So then we're saying to the, this, this person who's risking their lives and potential harm, that this is okay to do. So we're enabling and empowering and now endorsing illicit drug use. And that's the concern that we have because there is no safe drug taking. There is no safe drug taking limit. The safest drug taking uh, regimen is not to take it at all. That's the only safe model. So anyone talks about, they, do, they do use the word safer. And again, that's supposed to make it somehow better. But again, you test a pill. So let's say you've got you've got a good batch of MDMA, whatever that you know looks like. Good batch is. You have 20 people at that rave party take that same batch. So 20 tablets from the same batch are given to 20 different party revelers, right? Uh, let's say, for example, five take it, does next to nothing for them. They got a bit of a buzz, and that was it. Another five had the best time of their life. They went for 12 hours. The next day, the next three days, they're, they're crashing. They feel like rubbish, but hey, it was worth it. It's like the hangover after the drunk night out. Another five people get incredibly sick and have all sorts of problems. One person dies. Now, you, you've got this whole range. That's why I say when a person dies at a, at a rave festival, you can be rest assured they were the only person to take that particular drug. So even when you've got pill testing in place, you're saying to people, we can't test for the biochemical markers and the physiological individual physiological variables in every individual person and so what you're saying is oh well we're at least we're taking a potential risk out so well, no 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 what you're doing is you're actually adding another level of permission to take a risky product and engage in a risky behavior so our concern is that this is not this voice is 
again, about normalisation. This voice is about you're going to do what you want to do and we're going to endorse your behaviour despite it being dangerous, harmful and illegal. We're going to endorse that. So, again, that educative message is getting through to young people. I get to do what I want and people are willing to help me take risks and look like good guys because somehow, you know, oh, they're trying to help me out here so I can get high and minimise the potential of death. So, again, that whole message is absolutely outrageous. And that's not the message that's being talked about. It's been, oh, we're saving lives, we're saving lives. Shane, what you're illustrating is the immensity of the challenge of shifting attitudes when it comes to uh, the issues of drugs and alcohol. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Well, as you're hearing, an enormous task to shift attitudes, public attitudes, to very dangerous issues, drugs and alcohol. Uh, We're talking through some of those issues this hour. Shane Varco is our guest. Uh, Shane leads the Dalgano Institute and Dalgano Institute, a health education charity. We're talking through some of those issues. Uh, Shane, let's take a call. Uh, Graham is on the line from Tasmania. Hello, Graham. Welcome along to 2020. Hello, Neil. Graham. Uh, Look... Our nation, not only ours, but a lot of nations, we have gone down the road of rejecting God. And this is our reward, our punishments. We let weeds and thorns grow in our backyard and in our home. We can't do anything to remove them. Uh, The Philippines, the man over there, is certainly knocking things around. But Christ himself, when he comes back, everyone who's not abusing themselves in this way, they won't be existing. They'll be wiped off the face of the earth. Mm. Graham, good thoughts in there, and I wonder if we might pick up on uh, one of those thoughts. Uh, what's happening in the Philippines right now? And I'm I'm sure you're sure. across some of those things, Shane Varco. Uh, Indeed. I mean, that's a, that's a really, really uh, drastic approach to the drug mm. issue. Uh, what are your thoughts? Okay, just quickly on that one, because, again, there's a, an avalanche of data on this. Certainly the, the media, of, uh, and, and certainly killing uh, drug users and drug dealers is not a, a solution. But that's not all that's happening. Obviously, that's some of the, the dynamics in there. The, the media have painted that, of course, uh, as, as you can imagine, uh, the media have painted that in a very, 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 very negative light. And again, we totally oppose the killing, of, you know, arbitrary killing of people. This, this is never an option. Mao Zedong did it uh, when he got power in, in China. There was 20 million addicts, and he came in and said the same thing because of the the British Empire had got the entire, basically, population hooked on opium. And they said, if you're not off drugs in 30 days, we will kill you. And their, their uh, drug epidemic, uh, quite remarkably, uh, more than halved in overnight. But that, that's another story. But what's happening in the Philippines is is not only is is it the, the disgusting things that are happening there, inappropriate, but what they've done is they've said, you will come in. This is the rule. Come in. If you're a drug addict, surrender yourself, right? And, we, and we'll try and give you help. Two, if you uh, don't surrender yourself and you're a drug dealer, we will come and arrest you. If you resist us, we will kill you. That's what's being done, right? Again, we're not condoning the killing of anybody, but that's what's actually in play. That's what's in the play in the marketplace. But what's happening behind the scenes is that people don't know about, which we are privy to, because I've actually written a letter to the to some of the key ministers in the Philippines on the behalf of a, of a, a global not-for-profit uh, called the Vienna Non-Government uh, Organization on... Uh, I can't remember the rest of it now. Sorry, yeah, yeah. but they um, but they sent a letter saying we've got to stop these ex, you know extrajudicial killings, and we totally can support that. But what's happening is the government have gone to every. This is what we've just found out the last two weeks. 
they've written a letter to every church denomination in the Philippines and said, we've got now hundreds of thousands of people who have handed themselves in. We've got them locked up. Help us get them off drugs. Whatever you need to do, do it. And all of a sudden, tens of thousands of, of drug addicts uh, are being presented with all sorts of options. Some are very awful, some aren't, because churches often, often don't know what to do. But they've been presented with another hope, as, as, the, as the caller just talked about, another hope, another way forward. And we're seeing, uh, again, the church is now being asked to actively, actively involve in helping these people find another focus other than drugs in their lives. Now, that's for us, that's from our perspective, that any focus off drugs uh, into a beneficial matrix is a great thing. So that's just some of the tiny things that are happening on the ground that you won't hear about in the in the uh, in the more popular media because they don't report on those kind of things. But that's what we know from on the ground from the NGOs that we're dealing with, both secular and religious NGOs working in the Philippines. So it's a yeah again some of that model is quite disgusting and dangerous and 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 we, we oppose. But a lot of the stuff that's going on under the scenes is quite positive in, in the light of what's happening. Wow. Uh, thank you so much to Graham for your input, uh, Graham from Tasmania. I don't know if we've got time for another. Let's take another one quick call. Leanne is in Cairns in Queensland. Leanne, we need to be quick. What are your thoughts? Um, I agree with medical marijuana if it's controlled with, like, on a script as, as such. But I'd like to say that I would like to see the same attention given to alcohol that they do to cigarettes because I'd rather be on the road with a smoker than a drinker because at least with a smoker I can get out of their way, um, like with passive smoking. But when someone's driving drunk, you don't know whether they're driving drunk. At least with a cigarette smoker or a marijuana smoker, you can see them and say, well, I can get out of their way. But... Um, so I would like the same attention given to all drugs, but especially alcohol, Good. because that's uh, innocent victims in that more than smoking as such. Good question, uh, Leanne, well, and uh, your just, response. Leanne, great question. Just a quick response. Couldn't agree with you more, Leanne. In fact, like they said in, in the uh, the three drugs we have in the National Drug Strategy, three categories are uh, illicit drugs, alcohol and tobacco. Now, whilst I agree with you, tobacco, cigarettes never cause a man... To beat his wife to death, a cigarette has never caused in that car accident with, with it, that's left people a paraplegic. But alcohol does that every day. So yet, yet we've got this quit campaign on alcohol with, oh, sorry, on tobacco. On alcohol, we've got the moderate be responsible campaign. On illicit drugs, we have use but don't die campaign. So we've got this mixed messaging, and I agree with you. We need to have one message that these substances are all dangerous and alcohol is more dangerous than the others only because it is legal and socially acceptable. The only comment I'll disagree with you on, Leanne, is that when a person's smoking marijuana, most people don't smoke marijuana now. It's used through edibles or they vape it. So you wouldn't know if they were vaping or not. And, and we know now in America, for example, and even in Australia, more people are being booked for drug driving now than they are for drink driving because the campaign on drink driving has been good enough to reduce that totals, particularly in New South Wales, Victoria and Tasmania. But uh, when it comes to, to the, the legal drug, smoking, driving stoned is growing and there's more police now uh, finding people drug driving than they are drink driving. But I agree with you, we need to have a, a model that says, hang on, let's, let's get these things under control and certainly out of the market, uh, off the, uh, the public space. That's where a key issue is important. Leanne from Cairns, thanks so much for your input today and we have run out of time. Uh, Shane, I want to point people to the Dalgano Institute website because 
I know there's lots of great resource on there and uh, people can also uh, subscribe to a regular mailing just to keep up to date on some of the things that you are uh, pushing, promoting uh, so far as these education issues go. So dalganoinstitute.org.au, the website. And and, www.nobrainer.org.au for students and teachers. And, of course, we have other other components as well, including 21bethere.org.au, which is another program and campaign that we run nationally, which is in conjunction with other groups. And, look, just to let you know, look, 80% of Australians, finish on a positive note here, you know, over 80% of Australians want nothing to do with illegal drugs. Uh, nearly 50 to 51% of Australians want something, and even higher, want something done about what Leanne talked about, the alcohol issue, its advertising, its promotion and its, and its availability. So the vast majority of Australians are saying enough, we want change. So that's positive. We've just got the social media dynamic and these very powerful pro-drug lobbies that manage to infiltrate young demographics that are creating the grief for us. So if we can shift that, we're going to see some wins. Well, just great getting your insights, and uh, I look forward to another conversation in the new year, uh, Shane, where we might be able to follow through some more as to what's going on in the Philippines. I think that would be worthy of, uh, of picking up on as we get things fired up for 2017. Shane Varco, Executive Director, Dalgano Institute, dalganoinstitute.org.au. Shane, thanks so much for being with us today on 2020. No, thank you for having me, Neil. It was my pleasure. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.